Hello, Merry Christmas and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast, our favourite bits of 2021. this special Christmas episode, we revisit some of our favourite bits from 2021. We look back at the changes to the earliest foundation stage and listen to some feedback from members. We look at the Green Book and job evaluation and we bust those Ofsted lesson plan myths again. Boom! So Martin, here we are at the end of a very long year for everybody working in education. And rather than do a full episode uh, in December, um, we decided we'd look back at some of our favourite bits from 2021. So we've got three bits, haven't we, from throughout the year um, that we're going to, you know, look look back at and maybe have a chat about and um, and and replay for everybody. So the first one we've chosen was from our earlier special, wasn't it? Do you want to tell us a bit more? Yes. Yeah, so back in June, in episode four, we invited our early years specialist, Letitia McCullough, to join us on the Education Policy Podcast to talk about the changes that were being made to the early years foundation stage. We also spoke prior to the episode to get feedback from some of our members, and we reported that back to you. So here it is again. We hope you enjoy a second time around. We're going to move on to talk about the changes to the early years foundation stage framework. In a nutshell, what that framework is or is supposed to do is it, it sets the standards that all early years providers must meet to ensure that children learn and develop well. It should ensure children are kept healthy and safe and it should ensure that children have the knowledge and skills they need to start school. So pretty basic, that's what the framework is there to do. We don't have time to discuss in detail what the framework currently looks like and we're hoping that people listening that this is uh, important to will already know that so Letitia can you perhaps give us a bit of an idea about why changes have been made and what the changes are yes Rob well the reason the main reasons for the um, reforms were to improve outcomes at age five that's at the end of the reception year and particularly with early language and literacy, that's been a main focus. Um, Also to reduce workload so that practitioners can spend more time with the children and to support good oral health for all children and to make a number of um, minor amendments to um, the framework due to like updates in legislation. Okay, so there are three main changes, I think, Um, and let's try and take those one at a time. The headline, the one that's a bit different perhaps, Uh, is the change to the safeguarding welfare requirements where it now explicitly includes promoting good oral health. That is um, something that's completely new um, in the revised framework and um, the DfE have actually given examples to the settings about the way that they can implement this. It'll be down to each individual setting to decide how they actually do it Um, but it the examples that have been given are, um, you know, talking to children about eating sugary foods or the importance of brushing their teeth. Their second big change um, is around assessment. They've removed one of the criterias that's exceeding. So now there's only emerging or expected, um, which is it's hoped that that will simplify the assessment process. Um, there's also been a removal of statutory moderation by local authorities. Um, this was based on some research that was done with teachers about the time it takes to get all of the evidence together and do the moderation process Um, so it's hoped that these changes will reduce the amount of paperwork um, and give them more time to spend with the children. 
So I was talking to one of my um, friends about this. She She's a reception teacher, so she works in EYFS. And I, I, I think based on that point, one of the things she said, um, which I thought was quite encouraging, was that she said she couldn't wait to put her iPad down uh, and to encourage her TA to, to, to do so as well. And I, I think that's perhaps around that gathering of evidence for the moderation process. So that's encouraging. That is, that is encouraging. Um, and I think that's been a main driver behind the reforms. And they actually want to be spending that time with the children. And like anything, I suppose, we have to wait and see how it turns out. But exactly. it sounds good. It, it sounds good, but I think the proof will be in the pudding. The third and biggest change um, is in regards to the curriculum. Um, The government have revised all 17 of the early learning goals across the seven education programmes. I think it's really important that we mention all of them today um, because these are going to be the key things that our our members are going to be working towards. There's a new focus on extending vocabulary. PSED now includes self-regulation and self-care. Fine and gross motor skills have been separated into two separate early learning goals. There's a new goal on comprehension in literacy. In maths, there's a greater focus on deep understanding of numbers 1 to 10. And new early learning goal on number patterns. Shape, space and measure are no longer an early learning goal but still remain in the education programme. Technology has been removed as an early learning goal but still remains in the programme under expressive arts and design. On to the big question then, the most important question of all. What will be the impact of these changes on settings, staff, children, workload, all the things that we spend our time having to think about and talk. DfE says the changes will reduce workload. They've received a lot of positive feedback from early adopter schools and have been trialling the revised framework alongside the Development Matters document. We've had a bit of feedback, which is mixed, but probably leaning towards positive. Letitia, what do you think the impact's going to be? Thanks, Rob. Well, I definitely do think that these reforms will bring about changes that will need to be implemented. Um, You know, nursery leaders and managers will need to look at their existing policies and practices practices and update them to bring them in line with the revised early learning goals so there is some there's some workload implications there 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 is definitely initially um they'll also need to contact update staff on the changes and provide any training that may be necessary um you know or you know opportunities for professional development um, to help implement the changes. That's always important, isn't it? Making sure that the people you're expecting to make these changes have got the required skills and, and making sure they've been trained on it. I think that's, you know, number one priority because if those that are going to be implementing or working with the children aren't up to date or trained to deliver it, it's not going to have the desired impact that it's there for. Yeah, and we might come back to um, how staff have been and how schools in general have been informed about this. But Martin, what about you? What do you think are the main implications of this these changes? From listening to Letitia, from reading the documentation, I think there's the potential for this to have... Um, some some really positive impacts but as with any change the proof won't really be learned until until later on once this is fully embedded one of the things that we are particularly concerned about is this is something which is due to be in place in September 
and yet here we are at the end of June and the government has only just recently uh, begun to do some of the training videos and settings are only just really learning about how they're going to implement this despite the fact that many settings will be closing for the six weeks holidays very shortly and so that really does give us a little bit of cause for concern. Yeah so, so just some feedback I mean we're always after feedback anyone listening if you want to give us feedback on this episode a past episode any ideas for us to touch on in the future we've had a little bit on this subject from um, some early years teachers Michelle told us that she thinks the, the, the focus on early language development will make a real difference and that focusing on strengthening a deeper understanding of numbers 0 to 10 will help children to make better progress in maths whilst uh, Sophie said that uh, some elements uh, she feels would be very beneficial and a few less so I suppose that's that's pretty standard for any any um, new new framework but she did say that working with educational programs will allow more freedom rather than working to achieve early learning goals and this is a positive change as some teachers focus too much on the end goal rather than the here and now using our language from our <laughs> podcast i hope yeah, you've been listening <laughs> on the here and now um can we just briefly maybe touch on um how this has been communicated to the sector because I, I feel like from what i've heard that's perhaps been the biggest criticism martin yes it's questionable really as we've already mentioned we're quite late on in the summer term already and this is due to be implemented from september the first the framework only became legislation back in march so only three months ago and there's been a few vodcasts so video podcasts produced by the dfe to explain the changes in more detail um, but there haven't really been any training courses and of course covid has had an impact on the ability for settings to have uh, in-person training events or training events where more than one setting have been able to attend and so that's really hampered things the DfE have organised an online support service for providers and practitioners which has just gone live uh, and we'll be sending more information to members about this um, just as soon as we can. All of the details will be in the next newsletter will be going out um, next week. Yes, yeah, so again some of the feedback we had from uh, from Sophie said that she felt there had been a lack of publicity and she particularly couldn't help feel that it was a little last minute, the T-shirt. What, what do you think about the people's readiness? Um, you know, I totally um, agree with Sophie on that. And, you know, as Martin's um, already mentioned, um, communication hasn't been great on this. Um, so it does seem like that practitioners readiness for September will come down to how well the individual settings are actually um, getting prepared for the changes, or if practitioners have decided to do their own personal research and training. Which I'm sure most of them would have done. They're all very diligent people, we know. But I suppose, you know, if you literally don't know it's happened, you don't even know you need to do the research, do you? in the first place so 100 percent, and obviously you know we would say that there is a responsibility on employers as well to ensure that their staff are up to date on changes and receive any appropriate training absolutely Yes, that was probably one of my favourite parts of the year, having Letitia come in with us and do a little bit. We should do more specials next year. It's got to be definitely um, a a target of ours. So on to the next bit then. Now, this is something that we always get questions about from members. It's probably one of our most commonly asked about things, isn't it? What's the next best bit? Yeah, we regularly get calls from members to ask us about the Green Book. What is it? What does it mean? And how does it uh, affect their working life? And connected to Green Book is the job evaluation process, um, the single status process and job evaluation, how that affects people's salary. We recorded information about this back in May in episode three, and we thought it was so important that we'd play it for you again. We're going to talk about the Green Book. 
Now, this isn't to be confused with the burgundy books, different colour, that we've mentioned in past episodes. This is the Green Book. And the Green Book is a national agreement between local government employers, such as local authorities and schools, and unions. And it establishes national terms and conditions, such as rates of pay and that sort of thing. It covers teaching assistants and higher-level teaching assistants, office and clerical support staff, specialist support staff such as those working with SEND children, cleaners, site and ground staff, catering teams, to name just a few. Now, this might turn, Martin, into a bit of a question and answer session, I think, to some extent here, um, because I want to make sure that it's understandable for everybody. So my first question for you is, I suppose, what does it mean, this Green Book? Well, you've already said that the Green Book is a national agreement. This establishes the terms and conditions of employment for those people who work in local authority employment. Um, So for our members, as you said, TAs and HLTAs, ground staff, cleaners, etc. And it establishes their rates of pay. It establishes their entitlement to holiday. It explains their sick pay and all those employment terms and conditions. Are there any exceptions? I mean, for starters... Not all schools or local authority run anymore. So are there exceptions to the Green Book and who it doesn't apply to? Yes, there are exceptions. The Green Book doesn't automatically apply to anyone who works in an academy or a free school or an independent school. Those people who have tupid, who've transferred their employment over into an academy or a free school may still be covered under Green Book terms, but they may have terms and conditions that are established by their employer. Similarly, people working in a number of local authorities have not been covered by Green Book terms for a number of years because local authorities such as Buckinghamshire, Bromley, Hampshire, Huntingdonshire, Kent, Medway, Northamptonshire, Oxfordshire and Surrey have all opted out of the NJC arrangement. What's the NJC? So the NJC is the National Joint Council for Local Government Services and that is the organisation that negotiates on behalf of the local government. So some academies do adhere to the Green Book? Some academies do adhere to the Green Book, and some academies adhere to the Green Book because their employees are still under Green Book terms because they have transferred. So the NJC, which we've established is the National Joint Council, covers over one and a half million local government and school workers. So it is a really important negotiating body. Absolutely. The NJC pay claim was submitted on Monday the 15th of February this year. What can you tell us about that? The unions and the NJC uh, submit a pay claim every couple of years or so. And this year the claim is calling for a 10% pay rise for local government workers. And the full claim document can be found in the resources section on our website www.community-tu.org. On the 21st of August last year, the NJC committee agreed to accept the pay offer for the year 2021, which included a 2.75% pay increase, a one-day increase in the Green Book minimum level of annual leave, and some joint work on mental health. The committee said that the offer fell far short of the claim and did not properly reward key workers for their exceptional contributions throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. However, they agreed that it was the best achievable through negotiation. So the other thing people may have heard of in relation to the Green Book is about job evaluation and about single status. What's that? 
job evaluation is uh, a process where the um, relative worth of different jobs within an organization is assessed based on things such as skills, qualifications, experience and training. And it tries to make sure that equal jobs are valued equally for things like pay. Okay, so that's job evaluation. What about single status then? In 1997, a single status agreement was made between the local government and Greenbook unions to streamline all pay scales into one. And this was done to try and prevent inequalities in pay. Single status refers to this one pay scale. And to get all workers onto the same pay scale, councils had to evaluate every job type. So this is why single status and job evaluation are linked. There are a number of job evaluation schemes that local authorities and multi-academy trusts and other employers have used, and nobody is bound to use any one scheme. And although many of our members have now been through the job evaluation process with little impact, we do know that some have suffered quite badly, uh, especially those who were previously employed on full-time year-round contracts and who have subsequently been evaluated onto term-time only because they have seen a reduction in their salary. One of the things we often hear from our members is that they've been told by their employer that because Voice Community aren't one of the recognised Green Book trade unions, that we can't support them. That's not the case, is it? No, we can and do support members. We're just not recognised for the purposes of these national pay negotiations. We can and do help individuals and groups of employees with any and all employment issues that they might have. And of course, more and more, this doesn't apply to those working in academies and free schools, and we can continue to help those members too. So it's really important not to conflate the two issues of recognition for negotiating on the Green Book and support in your individual workplace. We can support you in your individual workplace. Absolutely. And of course, as a member, if you feel that there's a problem, please do get in touch. If you feel that there's a problem with your job description or with any of the job evaluation process, please get in touch. We have fully trained job evaluators working within community that can assist you in getting the correct pay and grading for the job you do. So the bottom line is get in touch. We can help. Yes, always important uh, to recap on the Green Book stuff and the job evaluation stuff. As I said, it is one of the things we get questions about the most. So it was good to hear that again from back in May. Okay, finally, for this Christmas special, we're going all the way back to April of this year when we did our very first Mythbusters and the very first time we heard Martin go, Boom! (laughs) So this Mythbusters way back in April, our very first one, was about lesson planning for Ofsted, Martin. was indeed. And we covered the whole thing about what you should and should not do. We felt that Ofsted was something which was continuing to rear its head within schools, earlier settings, nurseries. And we thought that it was really important that we revisit this really, really important myth buster to remind you of what it is that you should and should not be expected to do when Ofsted visit. So this is the bit I think I would really like um, a special jingle for because we're going to start doing a couple of myth busters at the end of the podcast. Um, and we'll start it off with, I think, one that probably would be most teachers' favourite question if they could ask it in terms of myth busting. And it's about Ofsted. 
Yeah, I've written down this section has been called Ofsted and the four-part lesson plan, which sounds like a really bad parody of Harry Potter. (laughs) So here's the the myth. Okay, I'm going to give you the myth and you bust it, if that's okay. So I think the myth is Ofsted want to see a detailed lesson plan when they walk in to observe you. So you're there, you know Ofsted's in school, you've planned all your lessons for your day, you're up till one o'clock in the morning the night before, making sure all your lessons were planned. And Ofsted walk into your classroom and the myth is that they want to see seating plans and detailed lesson plans. You've got to hand them to the Ofsted inspector as they walk through the door. Bust that myth. When I was teaching a few years ago, I had a, a long conversation with an Ofsted inspector. And one of the key things that I took away from that conversation was that if an Ofsted inspector has to ask for a lesson plan, then that's because they cannot see the plan in action. So that would be the first thing. No, Ofsted do not need to see a lesson plan. What they want is to see your lesson plan in action, in the learning that they can see in the classroom. We all know about four-part lesson plans where you recap previous learning, impart new information, prove that learning has taken place and then reinforce it as a summary. In general, that's actually not a bad thing. That's not a bad model to follow. But Ofsted don't need to see that and they certainly don't need it written up on eight pages of A4 and handed to them at the beginning of a lesson together with a seating plan. What they need to see is that you are teaching these children and that this lesson sits in a a sequence of lessons and that the children are making progress as they go along. So my understanding is, a bit like you've just said, but just to sort of, to to praise it, I suppose, Ofsted need to see evidence that you have planned the lesson. That could be as simple as writing it on a small uh, piece of paper in a few bullet points, or it could be just the presentation that you're using. Yeah, absolutely. if, If you've got a presentation with slides on it, that you use whilst you're teaching the lesson, that's evidence you've planned it. That is evidence you've planned it. And of course, the best evidence is also the learning that has happened previously, because Ofsted inspectors will speak to the children in your class about what has previously happened. If I can just quote from the Ofsted handbook, it says that Ofsted will, when making judgments, take a range of evidence into account. It does say that they will discuss with staff and pupils Uh, the work that is going on in lessons and the work that is in books, folders and sketchbooks. But it does make very, very clear what Ofsted will not do. It says that Ofsted will not grade individual lessons. It says that Ofsted will not create unnecessary workload through their recommendations. It says that Ofsted will not advocate a particular method of planning, teaching or assessment. And it's up to schools to decide what planning, teaching and assessment practices that they use in that school. So it doesn't even need, sorry to interrupt, it doesn't even, they don't even need to see specific marking in books. It's up to the school what assessment looks like. It's up to school what assessment looks like. Ofsted doesn't require curriculum planning in any specific format. It doesn't require a written record of feedback that you've given to pupils. It doesn't need to see individual lesson plans, previous lesson plans, future lesson plans. It doesn't need to see predictions of attainment or progress scores. And all of this information is made very clear in the Ofsted handbook. So let's imagine you're at a school where your head teacher says Ofsted does want to see all that. And that's what they want from you Week in, week out. How would we advise a member 
to go about approaching their senior leader in their school to advise that that's not actually the case? So this is a bit of a difficult one because the school is allowed to require staff to use pro formas for planning. It is advised to create its own assessment system. It can have its own planning system that it requires all staff to follow. What Ofsted are saying is that they don't have any preferred method. And so therefore, if the school is saying that they're doing this for Ofsted, the teacher can come back to the head teacher and say, actually, do you know what? The Ofsted handbook here, it says that that's not true. However, as a teacher, you can't then say, I'm not going to follow the school's lesson plan performer because that's failing to follow a reasonable request. It is a bit of a balancing act because schools will often say that something is being done for Ofsted and it might well be done to make things easier for the school so that they've got information ready for when Ofsted do turn up. But it's important that we make clear that Ofsted isn't actually asking for these things. So in summary, do Ofsted need to see a detailed lesson and seating plan? No. Absolutely not. That's the summary. It makes very clear in section 74 of the Ofsted handbook that Ofsted does not specify how planning should be set out. It doesn't specify the length of time that it should take or the amount of detail that that planning should contain. So there we go. That's that's our first myth busted. I've already got some ideas for the next ones. So there it was, our very first Mythbuster from way back in April. It seems a lifetime ago now. It's only a few months ago. <laughs> More booms from mine. I don't know when it stopped getting funny for me, but I don't laugh anymore. I just point to you and go, it's, it's boom time now, isn't it? But it, it used to be really funny. Sorry. Um, maybe we need something new for 2022. If you want to hear more on Ofsted, we did cover Ofsted uh, a little bit in our November episode that obviously came out um, actually at the start of December. Uh, Apologies for the slight delay, Uh, but it is a bit more in there on Ofsted. And as always, if there is anything you want us to bust the myth on, or rather I should say Martin, really, to bust a myth on, then please do get in touch with us. And one final time for 2021, Martin, that email address that people are going to get in touch with us on is educationpolicy at community-tu.org. Please do get in touch with us and we will do our best to uh, cover the topics that you suggest and bust some more of those myths. It's amazing that after so many episodes, I had to throw over to you for the email address because I still couldn't remember it off the top of my head. Um, Be remiss of us not to do uh, the social medias as well. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So that about wraps it up for 2021. Um, We've really enjoyed doing these podcasts. We hope they've been useful and enjoyable for, for, for our listeners. We've had some great feedback, which has been really, really nice. And in the new year, we'd like to think that we can get even more people listening to and feeding into the Education Policy Podcast for England. Have a very happy Christmas and a lovely new year, and we'll see you in 2022.